Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. How are you? You doing well? I hope so. Here's a brand new episode for you. And there is a PDF transcript for this one. It's a transcript of pretty much everything I'm going to say in the episode. And you can download that transcript free. You can just download it. You'll find a link in the show notes for this episode, uh, wherever you're listening to it. If you look in the, sh- in the notes, the text notes, you'll find a link to get the transcript that I'm reading from. Okay. Um, you can also find that link on the page for this episode on my website. Uh, you can just download it free. I'm not even going to ask for your email address or anything. You can just get it free, uh, just in case you would like to be able to read all of this stuff as well as listen to me say it. If you want to kind of go back and and uh, check words or repeat after me or do whatever, do whatever it is you want to do with that, you can. Uh, the link is in the description. Okay, right. So let's get started. I'm now going to start reading from that PDF transcript and I'm going to start reading from it right now. So here we go. Hello, everyone. In this episode, I'm going to be answering this question. Are you ready? Good. So the question is, what does it really mean to have good English? How do we assess someone's English level? How can IELTS help us to understand what good English is? And why is all of this important anyway? Admittedly, that was four questions rather than just one. But the main one is, what does it really mean to have good English? So here's an episode which I hope will be really useful as a way of helping you to understand what it really means to be good at English. We're going to consider some things about how English is assessed. So that means how your English level is judged, the different skills which are involved in using English, and what aspects of English are the most important. I hope this episode gives you a bit more perspective on what it means to have a good level of English. Also, there will be a lot of vocabulary for describing English skills and English levels or assessment in English. And that includes a lot of meta-language. Meta-language, that basically just means the language we use for talking about language. So try to notice all of that vocabulary too. Hopefully this episode will help you think about these things. Hopefully it will help you to think about your level of English, how to assess a person's level of English, and also how to talk about both of both of those things. So the language that we use to talk about those things. So it's important for any language learner to get a sense of what they should be aiming for in their learning so that they don't spend their time on the wrong things and that they have the right things prioritised in their learning. That's kind of the, the point here. So, do you remember the episode I published at the beginning of the year? Uh, That's 2023, just in case you didn't know what year it is. Unless, of course, you're listening to this in the future sometime. And 
you're kind of coming back to this episode uh, from the future. Anyway, I published an episode at the beginning of 2023 with Santi from Spain working in a top job at Oxford University Press. Do you remember that episode? It was called uh, Number 806, Perseverance, Positivity and Practice with Santiago Ruiz de Velasco from Oxford University Press. 806. You'll find that in the episode archive on my website. And if you haven't heard it, go back and check it out. Okay, it's a, it's a good one. Now, this episode that I'm doing right now follows on from that one. I was inspired to do this episode after seeing some responses from my audience to episode 806. Okay. Just as a reminder, Santi learned English mostly as an adult when he moved to London after studying at university in Spain. All right. Uh, he had some very challenging experiences being immersed in the English language and eventually found his way to a top job in the English teaching industry itself, not as a teacher, but in publishing. He ended up as the managing director of English language teaching at Oxford University Press. And he got to that position despite the fact that his English is not perfect, in quote marks. So I was pleased with that episode because it allows us to use Santi's personal experience as a way to consider the importance of motivation and attitude in dealing with challenges in learning English or any other language. And also it raised questions about what good English really means. With Santi, I would say that the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding. This is an idiom in English, which kind of means, how do you know if the pudding is good? Right? How do you know if it's good? Well, the we know if it's good. Um, we will know if the pudding is good when it's eaten, when it gets eaten. And if people go, hmm, this is delicious, then we'll know it's good. All right, it's a bit of a strange idiom. But anyway, the proof is in the pudding, in this case, means that we know that Santi's English is good because he uses it successfully every day. So the proof of Santi's level of English is in the way that he actually uses it. So the proof is in the pudding is a way of saying that we we can we know that something is good when it is actually used and then we can see how how good it how well it works when it's actually used. Okay, the proof is in the pudding. <laughs> we'll find out how good it is when it's actually used. So in the case of Santi's English, we know his English is good because he uses it successfully every day at work, right? Every single day at work, he uses English to successfully perform a number of different communication tasks. I expect he writes emails and reports in English, conducts interviews in English, does presentations, has meetings, probably does negotiations sells products and services in English and builds relationships with people in English. No doubt both professional relationships, but also meaningful personal relationships too. Obviously, that would probably be uh, in his free time, uh, unless he's building personal relationships with people at work. I don't know. I don't know his life. But anyway, I'm assuming a lot of that, right? I mean, I don't know exactly uh, what his job involves, but you know, I'm assuming a lot of those things uh, because I don't know every single thing he does in his job every day, but I'm pretty sure that he does all of those things, right? They're just totally normal communication tasks at work. 
And it's not just at work for Santi. I'm sure he also socialises in English too. So, th so the, the point is, I think the fact that he does all those things seemingly successfully, right, uh, this, is the, this is proof of his competence in English, right? Okay. Now, I think it would be very hard to be the managing director of the uh, English language teaching department of Oxford University Press without those kinds of communication skills in English. But as I mentioned, his English is certainly not perfect by any means. And he says this himself too. And a number of listeners in the comments section on YouTube pointed this out, or they felt compelled to point out um, shortcomings in his English, right? Some people did. Saying things like this, like he clearly has a Spanish accent or he made mistakes, which made me surprised that he's in that position. And I expected someone with RP English, that sort of thing. I'm paraphrasing there, but that's the gist of, of the comments. In fact, I can show some of the comments that, um, that were left um, in response to that episode. So one comment says simply this, his accent bad, actually. Yeah, his accent bad, actually. I actually replied to that one saying, does it matter? I said, does it matter if he's working and communicating successfully? Okay, so what does it actually mean to have a bad accent anyway? What is a bad accent? I mean, when I was talking to Santi, sure, I could tell he was from Spain because, hello, he's from Spain. But I was able to follow what he was saying. So I suppose a bad accent probably means uh, one that you can't understand. But I, I could understand Santi. Anyway, that was one example. Another one is this. Too bad Santi uses you know too often. So this one was a reference to the fact that Santi does use the filler expression, you know. He uses that quite a lot. Now, we've all got our own fillers that we use habitually. But anyway, this commenter felt it was necessary to point this one out. Too bad Santa uses you know too often. And I had to reply. I probably shouldn't rep shouldn't have replied uh, because sometimes it's best just, just to not reply. Not that that was... I mean, that's not really a really mean or abusive or trolling comment. You know, it's a fair statement, I suppose, because I'm replying to it here. But anyway... Too bad Santa uses you know too often. And my reply was, yeah, it's really held him back, hasn't it? It's really held him back, hasn't it? If something holds you back, it prevents you from making progress. So I suppose my sarcastic comment uh, was uh, to say, uh, yeah, okay, so he does say you know quite a lot, but it doesn't seem to have stopped him from succeeding. Okay, maybe he could use some different fillers just to avoid repeating the same thing. But why did this person who commented focus only on that when there were so many other positive things to take away from the episode? Um, so, so, and anyway, what is wrong with saying you know quite a lot? You know, the way that we, you know, sort of fill things into our sentences, you know. What's wrong with saying you know quite a lot? Well, I suppose... Here are some things, right? So, first of all, it doesn't stop us understanding him. It doesn't, it doesn't stop him expressing himself. So he does use that word. Fillers, filling, filler words, like like, sort of, you know, 
those things are almost like subconscious. We don't choose to put them in. They just kind of come in. They're like little vocal ticks that are used when we're thinking. Um, but those things don't actually stop us from understanding Santi. And it, it didn't stop him from expressing himself. Maybe even it may be actually useful in expressing himself. So it's just an aesthetic issue, not a functional issue. Aesthetics, that just means the way that something sounds or looks and whether it sounds or looks nice. Okay. Um, so Santi saying, you know, and this is really an, only an aesthetic thing, isn't it? That it maybe affects um, how pleasant it is to listen to him. But it's not really a functional issue because we it doesn't seem to affect our ability to understand him. And I suppose it's just annoying for some people, but it doesn't actually change the message or cause anyone misunderstandings. So a bit of perspective here. It's not such a big deal, is it really? Unless you're really focused on it, unless you're really sort of easily bothered by that sort of thing. Sure, Santi could work on this. And maybe I'll, maybe I'll email him. But we all have things to work on. And then a third comment is, was this. Santiago must be a great manager, but he doesn't manage to pronounce the SH sound properly. <laughs> Fair enough, that one is quite funny, I suppose. He must be a good manager, but he doesn't manage to pronounce this sound properly. I'm not the SH sound, shh. I suppose that's the sh sound, shh. My response to that was, well, nobody's perfect. Okay, now I shouldn't focus on the negative comments. The vast majority of comments in response to that episode were positive, I must say. But I notice that whenever I feature someone on this podcast who is not a native speaker, and even some guests who are native speakers but uh, have accents that are not like received pronunciation, some listeners have to comment or criticise what they are hearing. I don't think this is really the right attitude to have, personally. I mean, it's not a competition, is it? I don't think so. But the fact that Santi has that job, has achieved that, and continues to do that in English is something that can't be taken away from him. I mean, people can point out errors in his English, but ultimately the fact remains that he uses English very successfully on a daily basis. And that's important, the fact that he uses English successfully. What do I mean by that? What does using English successfully actually mean? I'm going to talk about that. Because this is the point of the language. It is functional. Language is a tool which we use to do a job. Okay? Um, language is functional and it should be judged first and foremost on that, whether it works as a communication tool. If English is a hammer, do I have a hammer? If I had a hammer, I've got a hammer here somewhere. Okay, all right. Here's, here's a hammer. Um, obviously, podcast listeners, people in audio land, you can't see this, but imagine I'm, uh, I'm holding a hammer. You don't need to imagine it. I actually am holding a hammer. Ham a hammer is a thing you would use to put a nail in a wall or put a nail in a piece of wood, right? So a hammer is a tool which has a very specific job. You use it to put a nail in a wall, Okay. Now, the, the, hammer, the hammer's job is to actually get the nail in the wall, right? And it should be judged first and foremost on its ability to do that. The second thing is, 
And, you know, in terms of its ability to do that, we're talking about it, the fact that it has the um, uh, a head which is made of a strong metal, uh, the, the, the surface that you use when you hit the nail is, is big enough um, that it, that, that it, uh, it, it's weighted properly, that there's enough weight in the head, that the handle is the right length, that the handle is designed so it's easy to, easy to grip and easy to hold on to, right? Those are the functional things that we should consider when we are judging whether a hammer is a good hammer or not. But then, Obviously, there are other things. The hammer should, I suppose, look nice because if you're going to own it, have it in your home and use it sometimes. And probably if you buy a hammer, you're probably going to have that hammer for a long time. So it should look quite nice as well, which means it should be made of a, a nice a nice wood with a nice grain in it. And um, maybe it should have some paint or a design on it, which looks nice. But, it's you know, it doesn't matter if it... If it, um, it doesn't really matter... If it looks really nice, if the hammer doesn't actually hit the nail in the into the wall, does it? It's kind of it's kind of similar with language. The aesthetic aesthetically pleasing aspects of language, like the way it sounds and and so on, those are important things. But they surely they're not the the first and most important things, and the things that we should focus all our attention on, right? That language first and foremost is functional and it should be judged first and foremost on that, whether it works as a communication tool. Sure, aesthetics are important too, okay? Uh, the absolute best communicators also have English, which is a pleasure to listen to, which is easy on the ears and is rich, pleasant and entertaining. But that stuff is also a matter of opinion and taste and is really just the cherry on top of the cake most of the time, right? Right? Why focus on the cherry? You need to have a cake first before you can have a cherry. You need something for the cherry to go on, right? Okay, I don't know if my cherry on a cake metaphor is working there, but maybe. Anyway, priorities. I think it's all about priorities. Uh, focus on the really important things first. And that means the cake. And then work on the aesthetics. That's the cherry on the top of the cake. Uh, afterwards. Okay, as I said, I'm getting a bit lost in this cherry cake metaphor now, but I hope you get what I mean. So, common attitudes and assumptions about good English. The point is that these comments are indicative of certain attitudes about English proficiency. They show us what a lot of people think makes someone good at English. Namely, these things. First of all, accuracy. Accuracy means using English without making errors. So if you are accurate, it means that you don't make many errors. Okay, so we call this accuracy. Um, so accuracy, especially grammatical accuracy, is the most important thing. And speaking with zero errors is what makes you good at English. So no mistakes. Okay, so remember we're, we're talking about sort of, I think, like common attitudes about what makes someone good at English. Usually the first thing that people say is that someone speaks without making any mistakes. Okay. Another attitude is that all learners of English should have received pronunciation. Or another sort of stand, maybe a sort of a, a standard American, maybe. But we're talking about British English here on this podcast. So 
uh, let's use received pronunciation. So the attitude is all learners of English should have received pronunciation as their target in terms of pronunciation. And if you speak with a different accent or with obvious traces of your first language, then this is a problem. And hearing someone use English with an accent is somehow shocking or even unpleasant. And then third, uh, you're good at English if you use complex English, meaning longer words, um, formal words, a lot of idioms and convoluted sentence structure. Okay, so basically, the, what, this kind of attitude, which I see quite a lot, boils down to you need to make no pronunciation errors or, uh, or grammar mistakes and you should use complex, impressive language. And this is what makes someone good at English. So that, that short list of assumptions there is based on the things I've heard and read from learners of English during my teaching career. Uh, I've met thousands of learners of English and also I've read and also I've read thousands of online comments from learners of English too and I often notice these attitudes. I suppose it's understandable really that some people think like that. I mean it's it's understandable. I totally get it. Because not everyone has thought about this subject a lot because they don't work in language teaching, right? And also people have been taught that English is all about correct grammar and correct pronunciation. And these things are also the obvious sort of low-hanging fruit in terms of English assessment. Low-hanging fruit just means, is another expression which just means like the easy things, the things that are easy to see and easy to get. So in terms of English assessment, the low-hanging fruit is no grammar, you know, grammar mistakes, pronunciation, like influence from the first language, and probably complex vocabulary or sophisticated, impressive vocabulary. Okay. Um, this is probably just what people get taught because at school, typically you end up focusing on those things, don't you? On, you focus on grammar, you focus on grammar rules, you get tested. There's lots of right and wrong exercises. Um, and pronunciation is very obvious. Now, it's not everyone's job to think about how to assess someone's language level. And to be honest, I only learned about this from doing professional training, reading academic books, teaching IELTS courses, and working out the assessment criteria for Cambridge exams and stuff. And we're going to look at that official assessment criteria for judging someone's language level later in this episode in order to find out that it's not just about grammar and pronunciation errors, and that there are other important factors. Obviously, being correct in pronunciation and grammar are important things, but only to a certain extent. Like with the example of Santi, I feel like some of those comments are trying to take away Santi's achievements, but you can't, can you? You can't really. Like I said before, the fact remains that although he makes a few mistakes in grammar, and clearly has a Spanish accent when he speaks English. Despite those things, he is a very successful user uh, of the English language, and you can't take that away from him. So how does he manage it then? How does he manage to do it without being perfect? Well, what makes someone good at English then? What else is important? What I'd like to do now is talk about actually what makes someone good at English 
and to show that there is a lot more involved than just accuracy, meaning making no errors, and complexity, using big, impressive, rare words that no one else knows. Defining what makes someone good at English should be an important thing for us all to consider and remember, I think. For you, if you are a learner of English, this is all about how you can get a sense of what you should be focusing on and what you should be trying to achieve. Also, it can help you get out of a negative frame of mind when learning English. If you're afraid that your pronunciation is not perfect or that you know that you make errors when you speak, right, that, that can actually be very limiting for you. It can like, totally ruin someone's confidence if they're really afraid of making mistakes. So it might help to know that those things are not the be-all and end-all in this English-speaking game. I'm calling it a game. <laughs> like it's a rap game or something. <laughs> well, maybe you consider English to be a game, kind of, you know, why not? Also, if you're a teacher of English like me, thinking about this can help us to guide our students and to provide the right kind of teaching to help them to achieve things in English, like to set certain realistic targets and, and so on and set realistic expectations. So how do you assess someone's English level? Well, um, let's use IELTS as a way of helping us uh, to answer this question, right? Let's use IELTS. IELTS, what are you, some of you are going, I, I what? IELTS, I-E-L-T-S. Okay, that's the International English Language Testing System. It's a sort of famous English test. So let's use IELTS as a way of helping us to answer this question. By looking at how IELTS measures someone's English level, we can work out what good English actually means. So what is IELTS then? Well, I've just kind of just said this, haven't I? Um, the International English Language Testing System, and this is from Wikipedia, by the way, this paragraph. Um, so the International English Language Testing System is an international standardised test of English language proficiency for non-native English language speakers. It's jointly managed by the British Council, IDP IELTS Australia and Cambridge Assessment English and was established in 1989. OK, that was from Wikipedia. Basically, IELTS is probably the standard international test for assessing someone's level of English as a foreign or other language. It's just a very common test that people have to do in order to get an official uh, English level score, which they can then present to uh, universities if they're trying to apply for university courses in English, and they can present their IELTS score to employers who maybe have a requirement for a certain level of English. So if you've got your IELTS score, this is like an official uh, an officially recognised, reliable score, a judgment or an assessment of your English level, which you can use for various different purposes. So working out someone's level of English accurately and reliably is not easy. Sure, I could speak with a learner of English for 10 minutes. I could do like a little interview with a learner for 10 minutes and get a good idea of their level. Right. Um, but to get a fully detailed assessment, including different reading, writing, listening and speaking skills, a longer and more rigorous test is needed. And this is why the IELTS test is quite long and quite complex. 
It takes a few hours to do the test and it's divided into lots of different parts. It's all done in a serious and thorough way. So IELTS is a test that's been developed over a very long time by experts in English language teaching and testing based on a lot of academic research and professional experience into how people learn and use the English language, right? So it's, it's you know, it's really serious. They've a lot of thought and research and experience has gone into it. IELTS was developed by academics, teachers and examiners from Cambridge University and the British Council. These people know what they're doing when it comes to finding out someone's level of English. They want to do it properly because this is important, right? <laughs> um, universities and employers want to get a reliable sense of the level of English of potential students or employees so they can be sure that those people will be able to use English to work or study successfully. A reliable test is vital for this and that's what IELTS is for. Now, it might not be a perfect test. There's probably room for improvement in some regard, right? In fact, it probably could be even longer and even more thorough, but that might just be impractical. Anyway, let's look at the way IELTS works and we'll see if we can draw from it some conclusions about the whole question of what it means to be good at English. So IELTS is in four sections, as you may know, speaking, listening, reading and writing. Okay, so there are four parts to the IELTS test. Each part is of equal importance to the other. So there, speaking is 25%, listening 25%, reading 25%, writing 25%. And right, so they're, they're all equally important. And already this shows that there are four skills involved in someone's English ability. And of course, this reflects the type of things that you might need to do in English. Okay, you have to speak to people. You have to listen to people speaking in various situations. You have to read English in different forms and you have to be able to write in English. Okay, so it's not just speaking skills. That's just one part of the picture. Let me talk about those four skills in a little bit more detail. We'll start with speaking. Of course, speaking is often considered as the most important skill. It's the obvious skill. This is what we notice in people. As well as being vital for functional social communication, speaking is very closely connected to our identity and the way we express who we are to the world. Naturally, it's often the way your English is judged because people meet you, talk to you, and then immediately get a sense of your English level from that conversation. Fair enough. Speaking is important. But in IELTS, it's only 25% of the test. It represents 25% of your final IELTS score. And as we will see, speaking can be divided into different sections too. So it's not just speaking, there's different subcategories of assessment within that. And pronunciation is only one of those sections. Let's move on to listening. So this is underestimated in terms of its importance. I've talked before about how, perhaps surprisingly, we spend more time listening than doing any of the other skills. Um, in episode 586 of this podcast, I talked about the importance of listening. You can listen to that, episode 586. And also uh, in, a, in a YouTube video, which I uploaded a couple of years ago, 
also called The Importance of Listening in Learning English. That was a conversation uh, where I kind of echoed some of the same points I made in episode 586. So, uh, yes, listening is underestimated. Also, it's absolutely vital that we understand the people we are talking to. So these are listening skills. If we don't understand the people we're talking to, then everything breaks down. Now, one way that I judge someone's language level when I'm talking to them is, is the amount of effort I have to make for me to be understood by that person. Okay, so if I am um, talking to a learner of English and I've been given the task of judging their English level through a little spoken interview, one of the factors that helps me decide is the amount of effort I have to make for me to be understood by that person. How much am I having to carry the conversation? You know, how much work am I doing to, to, to maintain the conversation? How much am I carrying it? So this is a way for me to judge their listening skills in conversation. Now, if I just talk normally without having to adapt my English or pay close attention to make sure the other person is following me, if I could just talk normally and just be myself, it means their English is great. Okay, and I'm talking about really just relaxing and being myself. Not in presentation mode, just in kind of normal conversation mode. If I can just relax and be myself, then that's a good sign. I've met people who have had good English on paper and who were capable of producing sophisticated spoken English, for example, in a presentation or something. But they were simply bad at having a conversation because their listening skills were not so great. They didn't seem to be listening or just didn't pick up on a lot of the things I was saying, right? I'm talking about having a conversation with someone and they just don't notice a lot of the things that you're saying. Maybe they're not listening. Maybe they don't think listening is that important. Or maybe they're just a lot of things, are, they're just missing a lot of things and they don't even realise it. Because that's the thing about listening. It's tricky because you can't see or hear the things that you're not understanding. With reading, you can you re you've got your page and there are all the words there and you know you can see the things that you don't understand. But with listening, the things you don't understand, sometimes they're invisible, especially if you're dealing with like fluent speech. If you're trying to listen to fluent speech, a lot of the words or syllables or whatever gets squashed and sort of seem to disappear. You're just kind of picking, holding on to the bits that you understand and a lot of the other stuff just becomes noise and it just passes you by, you know. Uh, so, yes, I have met people who've had good English on paper, but in terms of conversationally, they were pretty bad because of their listening skills. For example, when listening to me talk, they didn't seem to realise how I felt about certain things we were talking about. They didn't notice little jokes I was making. They didn't react to certain points I made and didn't respond to my efforts to talk about certain things. And it wasn't because they were just bad communicators, even in their own language. It's because their listening just wasn't good enough and they weren't able to follow what I was saying and in fact didn't even realise it. So listening also relates to being able to deal with different accents. English is a diverse language and people speak it slightly differently all over the world. Not just in different countries, but in different parts of those countries. And this is, this is a good thing. And a beautiful thing, right? Um, 
So being good at English means being able to understand English in all its diversity. Only a small percentage of people speak English like me, with my accent. Let's call it modern, let's call it standard modern English received pronunciation. Um, okay, you could, let's say, um, although sometimes you might hear little traces of an accent or certain colloquialisms and stuff, but anyway. So only a small percentage of people speak English like me. If you hear someone from, well, anywhere, and they have an accent which is in any way different from my standard British English or whatever accent you consider to be neutral, right, whatever accent you consider to be clear and normal, if you listen to someone from who has an accent that's in any way different from that and you don't understand it, then I'm afraid that is not the fault of the accent or the person speaking it. Okay? For example, you know, if you say, oh, I can't understand... Uh, someone from Liverpool, that's not because um, a Liverpool accent is intrinsically difficult to understand because everyone in Liverpool understands each other just fine, right? It's just because of your position in relation to it. You're not familiar with it enough. And, you know, you can't deny that. You can't say, uh, only <laughs> I will only understand these people or I will only understand this kind of English. That means you're not really... Uh, developing true English listening skills. Okay? So if you don't understand someone with a slightly different accent, it's not because of the accent. It's because, I'm afraid, your listening skills are still not good enough. You're still not familiar with spoken English. Now, don't feel bad about that, okay? Don't feel bad about that, please. That's not the point. All right? The point is, listening skills are a huge part of the puzzle. Think of Santi from episode 806. He described struggling so much every day when working in London as a waiter. He didn't understand what people were saying to him. People were asking for a Coke and he was bringing them their coat, right? He, he first arrived in London and actually heard real English being spoken and he freaked out. It wasn't like it was in the textbooks at school. He didn't understand what he was hearing. In London, I expect he met various English people from different parts of the country. The English he heard was unrecognisable to him at the beginning because he simply had never heard it before. His English skills, his English listening skills improved dramatically while living in the UK as he got exposed to the language. When I spoke to him, I felt he was completely on my wavelength and I didn't have to struggle or make a lot of effort um, to kind of adapt my English or myself during the conversation. I could relax and I felt like he would be able to follow my train of thought. So I didn't feel like I was doing a lot of heavy lifting during the conversation. Right? A lot of listening is connected to pronunciation as well. Good listening skills also relate to an, an ability to understand the way people produce the oral version of English. And this means being familiar with things like connected speech. That's the way words get connected together when people speak. Elision. That's the way certain sounds get removed or disappear. Uh, sentence stress. That's the way we emphasise different syllables in a sentence. Word stress. That's the way we emphasise different syllables in words. And the unstressed syllables of those words might uh, not be pronounced with full vowel sounds. Uh, weak forms, that's the way certain words like prepositions or auxiliary verbs will be pronounced with weak forms and they sound squashed, right? Uh, and all of those things, okay? It's about 
sort of understanding how spoken English really works with all those features. It's about knowing the oral version of the language, which is often very, very different to the written version. This doesn't just mean knowing it academically, understanding the phonology and, you know, like knowing the sort of uh, the science of pronunciation. It doesn't mean just knowing the rules and stuff, but knowing it through familiarity, having heard a lot of English from diverse sources so that you have kind of trained your ears to it. So it's not a huge shock or surprise when you actually hear it being used in the normal way, right? So it's about learning, being, becoming familiar with the different versions of English. So it's not a huge shock or surprise when you actually hear it being used in the normal way. This is why it's important for me to make sure I include plenty of conversations or content with people who speak different in different ways, with different accents, and uh, who are not like grading their English too much. Um, reading. What about reading? Now, I don't have so much to say about this, except that reading is not just about knowing the words that you are seeing and knowing which grammatical forms are being used. It involves being able to see being able to identify the bigger picture, what those words and that grammar are really communicating to you. Can you identify? So when you're reading a text, can you identify the opinion or attitude of the person who wrote the text? So what do they think? Right? Can you identify what they think or whether they are being serious or humorous in their writing? Can you get the tone of the, can you pick up on the tone of the piece that you're reading? Can you identify their mood? Can you identify their intentions and the overall purpose of the writing? Can you identify what kind of text it is? An article in a newspaper, a business report, an advertisement, a formal email. If I just gave you a piece of writing without, you know, just out of context and said, all right, where did that piece of writing come from? Would you be able to do it? right? Um, internal email, external email, a piece of fiction, a humorous true story, a religious text, an old-fashioned piece of writing, something modern. Are you aware of the different stylistic and linguistic conventions of different types of text? Are you able to read between the lines to kind of see what's being suggested but not explicitly suggested? Can you identify specific information as well as more general things? So, you know, it's more than just knowing individual words and grammar forms. It's also about overall text structure, organisation and tone. Again, uh, it's not just about speaking. In the real world, all of these things come into play all the time. The listening, the reading, the writing, the speaking. It's, if you're actually using English, you know, uh, in, a, in, a, in a fully developed way, all these things come into play all the time. It's, a, it's, a, it's all a mix of dealing with input, understanding it, responding to it, while managing the pragmatics of communication. So managing what impact language has on other people, right? Not just about having certain, not just about um, speaking without making any mistakes. Um, although that is important, of course, to an extent. And then finally, writing. This relates to reading in the way that it's not just about knowing lots of words or grammar points, but knowing how to put those words and structures together to make a piece of writing that is coherent. That means easy to understand for the reader. Cohesive. That means logical and organised. 
and which does what it is supposed to do. For example, to persuade, to inform, to request information, to entertain, and so on, right? And again, let's go back to the thing about pragmatics. Also, your, the piece of writing should somehow manage the relationship you have with that person as well, so that you're not being rude or something like that. With writing, sometimes the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, right? It's a bit like cooking a good meal. It's not just the ingredients and the cooking utensils. It's about having the overall vision for making a delicious meal and then using those ingredients and utensils to produce the intended result and deliver it at the right time and have your guests say, hmm, Luke, this is delicious. Even if your name is not Luke, it would be weird if they did that. If your name was Santiago and you made someone delicious food and you gave it to them and they said, hmm, Luke, this is delicious. I don't know what that would mean. <laughs> that would mean the food was so good, they forgot your name. Now it's like, oh my God, this food is so delicious. I can't remember your name, even though you're my best friend. Even though you're my husband, I can't remember your name because the food is so good. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Um, right? So writing is like that. In the sense that it's about putting the parts together to create something that is greater as a whole than it is just the sum of all the individual parts that you've put into it. Mm -hmm. So in terms of words that you might use in writing or in speaking, it's not about knowing a lot of words either. That helps, of course, right? But the reason I say that is because some people might judge their English by the number of words they know. Like, for example, the higher the number, the better they are at English. Not necessarily. And it's not about how fancy or obscure those words are. And I say that because some people might judge their English by the rarity of the words they know. Like, you know, knowing very rare words. For example, knowing some words that even a lot of native English speakers don't know. That's not necessarily an indication of being good at English. What's the use of writing something or saying something that most people just can't understand because you're using very old or very obscure, rare words? Okay? So it's not necessarily about the number or the value of each word on its own. It's about using the right words in the right combinations at the right moments to achieve the right result. And that may be the most important part, achieving the right result. It's no good writing an email to someone and filling it with loads of complex and literary words and phrases that nobody really uses on a daily basis, especially in an email. The effect on the reader will be just to confuse them. And that's essentially failing to communicate, right? That's kind of like, what? What would this be like, Luke? Um... Well, it's, yeah, never mind. So I've said it before and I'll say it again. English is not just about what you know, it's about what you can do. It's about your ability to complete tasks in English effectively, to understand other people and then have other people understand you, right? It's about knowing when to use simple English sometimes and when it's appropriate or necessary to use something more complex or something more specific. Right words, right form, right order, right time. Okay, it's not just about dazzling people with certain big, f impressive words that apparently native speakers use. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So, I just talked about the four skills in English, right? Speaking and listening, writing and reading. Speaking and listening are together because they deal with the oral version of the language, the, the language in the air. And reading and writing go together because they deal with the written version of English, the, the language written down. Now, because I'm referring to my interview with Santi from episode 806, which was an oral interview, let's focus our attention for the rest of this episode on the spoken word, okay, on speaking skills. I did say that... Um, Speaking is only a quarter of the whole picture. But I think for many of you out there, speaking is what you want to focus on, right? So let's consider what makes someone a good speaker of English. What I'm going to do now is look at IELTS assessment criteria. And I know you're thinking, fantastic, Luke, this is what we've been waiting 50 minutes for. This is the kind of sexy content that I've come to expect from episodes of Luke's English podcast. I mean, that conversation you had with Amber and Paul about toilets was entertaining, but it's nothing compared to how exciting this is. IELTS assessment criteria. Yes. Um, <laughs> what is IELTS assessment criteria? Well, assessment criteria means the specific ways in which English is judged. Okay. The criteria means the specific standards by which English is assessed or judged, measured. Okay. How do IELTS examiners judge someone's level of English? When you take an IELTS speaking test, you will receive a score at the end, right? The score is calculated by the examiner after they have listened to you. And in fact, do, while they're listening to you as well, they kind of work it out. But anyway, the, the examiner makes the final decision after they've listened to you and after they've uh, marked you in a few subcategories right? So speaking is broken down into a few subcategories and you're given a score for each category and then those scores are added together and then an average score is worked out. Okay, what are those categories you're, you're asking? Well, you've got fluency and coherence and I'll be explaining these. Fluency and coherence, that's one. Lexical re resource, resource, lexical resource, and grammatical range and accuracy, and pronunciation. I'll explain those in more detail in a moment. But those are the four categories. So speaking is divided into those four categories. Fluency and coherence, lexical resource, grammatical range and accuracy, and pronunciation. Each category is defined further 
and certain criteria or standards are defined, which help the examiners decide what score to give in each category. All right. OK, so, I mean, even though even those categories are broken down into more specific descriptions in other Cambridge exams, like FCE, that's first certificate of English and CAE, that's the certificate of advanced English. Speaking scores are assessed with similar criteria to IELTS, but there's also a score for global achievement. OK, this is like a score for overall task achievement. How did you achieve the task? When you do a speaking test um, in FCE or CAE, you're given a few tasks to do. For example, it could be a short interview, having a discussion, doing a short monologue or presentation. And global achievement basically means, did the person manage to complete the task effectively? Here's a, here's a quote from um, the Cambridge English website explaining how scores are measured for FCE, First Certificate of English, which is like a B2 level exam. If you, if you pass that exam, it means that you have B2 level of English and you get a certificate as a result, which you can show to people. Look, I'm B2. There it is. There's the certificate. So here's a quote from uh, Cambridge English explaining how their uh, speaking scores are measured. OK, uh, so candidate speaking performances are assessed using scales which are linked to the common European framework of reference for language levels. The assessor gives zero to five marks for each of the following criteria. This is what I've just said, isn't it? Uh, now, this is for CAE and FCE, right, rather than IELTS. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So IELTS was fluency and coherence, lexical resource, grammatical range and accuracy and pronunciation. For FCE and CAE, it's grammar and vocabulary, discourse management, pronunciation and interactive communication. And then marks for each of these criteria are doubled. The interlocutor, that's like the examiner, gives a mark of zero to five for global achievement. So in CAE and FCE, there are actually two examiners. There's the one who speaks to you and there's the one who sits at a table in the background and makes you feel nervous. <laughs> the interlocutor is the one who actually talks to you and they, may, they record a single score for global achievement. The other one, the assessor, who sits at the back staring at you and listening to you, making you feel nervous, they give you scores in the other ones. So basically, what's the thing I'm saying there? Uh, Global achievement, you get a mark for that, and that mark is multiplied by four. This is a bit confusing, but basically this means that global achievement is more important than any other single criteria. What is global achievement? For me, this is how well the person succeeded in the communication task. Right? And what I mean by this is, this is the important thing. Your ability to complete a communication task effectively is more important than just having uh, correct pronunciation or grammar. Having a few errors in your English is not the end of the world. And what's more important is task achievement. And that includes all the stuff about getting things done in English and getting the right result from a bit of speaking. If you make a couple of errors in, in the middle of it, it's not that bad if people still understand you. Right? Now, this doesn't mean that um, Cambridge, you know, IELTS and Cambridge exams and so on 
are basically advocating for low standards in English and they oh it doesn't matter. You know what? It does let's not worry about being correct. It doesn't really matter. No, it just shows that um the priority with English is to actually communicate and get things done. Okay, so um task achievement. For example, did you work well with your speaking partner in order to achieve the task you were doing? Maybe to discuss some travel options, maybe something like that before deciding together which one was the best or having to make another joint decision of some kind. That's the kind of task you would have to do in one of those exams. Actually, let's have a look at a sample part three section from a CAE speaking test, shall we? Let's do that, shall we? Okay. Let's look at uh, part three. So they're in, um, in the CAE exam. As far as I remember, there are four parts. And part three involves working together with a partner. So in CAE, you're tested in the speaking test with another candidate. And sometimes you speak on your own. Sometimes you speak with the interlocutor. And sometimes you speak together with the candidate. Okay. So um, what you're going to see on the screen or on the PDF, I'll describe it to you, uh, is some extracts from a sample speaking test from this page, cambridgeenglish.org. By the way, CAE is another English test designed by Cambridge English. If you pass the test, you get a certificate which proves that you have advanced level English at C1 level. Yeah, look at that. CAE is similar to IELTS. It's based on the same research and conclusions that have been used in creating IELTS, so it can help us to understand how English is assessed as well. So let's look at the extracts to see an example of a speaking task that people have to do uh, when taking CAE. Okay. Um, so, right, and we'll, we'll look at this to just give us some context or a case study for what would be considered uh, good English um, for, the, for this part. Okay, so in part three, the examiner is interested in seeing how people use English to achieve something in collaboration with someone else. Okay, so it's about interaction and working together for a common goal, which I think are important communication skills. So here we have um, a part three task from CAE on the screen. And this is a script. So first the interlocutor, and that'll be me. The interlocutor says this. Now, I'd like you to talk about something together for about two minutes. Here are some things that people often have to make decisions about and a question for you to discuss. First, you have some time to look at the task. Right, so first of all, you have some time to look at the task. The interlocutor said, here are some things that people often have to make decisions about and a question for you to discuss. First, you can look at the task. So the task shows us a diagram. Uh, and in the middle, there is a question. And then branching off from that question are a number of different things. So the question in the middle is this. What might people have to consider when making these decisions? What might people have to consider when making these decisions? And the options, choosing a university, starting a family, moving to another country, getting married and finding a job. So what might people have to consider when making these decisions? Right, so that's what the task says. Now, says the interlocutor, talk to each other about what people might have to consider when making these decisions. So at this point in the test, you have two minutes 
to talk to your fellow candidate about what people might have to consider when making these decisions. So you can kind of briefly together go through the options and talk about what people might have to consider when making these decisions. So it'd be something like this. First person says, okay, so um, what do you think? Um, I, I, you know, what about choosing a university? And the person says, well, um, choosing a university, you'd probably have to think about the location of the university and probably what kind of courses they offer. And the other person would say, yeah, that's right. And maybe the, the price as well of the university, because different universities have, have different uh, prices, you know, for, for, the, for the education. Yeah, absolutely. How about starting a family? This surely is an important thing. You'd have to consider lots of things for that, wouldn't you? Uh, yeah, um, all sorts of things. It may be the most important one, but um, uh, we can come back to it maybe. What about moving to another country? I mean, you're going to have to think about where exactly you're going to move and whether you know the language right? Yeah, so that's certainly language may be the most important one, but you need to know about the culture and the, uh, the the sort of economic situation of that country as well, and so on. Um, you know, lots of factors there. What about getting married? That's another one. Well, getting married, obviously, <laughs> you just have to make sure that you've found the right person, right? <laughs> yeah, good point, right? It's going to be that for two minutes. Um, and then the interlocutor says, thank you, when the two minutes is up. And then the interlocutor says, now you have about a minute to decide in which situation it's most important to make the right decision. Okay, so the candidates now have to decide which situation is the most important. In which one is it, the, is it most important to make the right decision? And so you'd say, hmm, let's see. Do you want to start? Okay. Um, hmm, I, I think... Probably starting a family or moving to another country. These ones strike me as maybe being the most important. And the other person would say, yeah, absolutely. I think for me, starting a family has got to be the most important one uh, because, um, well, it's just such a huge decision, isn't it, to bring children into the world. Yeah, absolutely, because um, you've got to be you're going to be responsible for their for their education. So um, I think this is probably the most important one. If you make a wrong decision here, then you know, it could be disastrous for those children's lives and also for your life as well. If you, if you, you know, don't think about it properly. Yeah, exactly. Because you've got to think about, you know, there's, there's so many different factors. You've got to think about uh, uh, whether you've, you can afford to do it. And if the, the relationship that you're in is, is, is the right one in which to bring up kids and so many different things. But I, I think that probably the, the starting a family is probably the, the most important one. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I would agree. Right. So it would be something like that. Okay. Now, you should see how global achievement or task achievement is important here. This is about how you were able to use English to complete a communication task with another person. Right. And I think that is a really important thing to be included in the exam and for people taking the exam to consider. Remember what language is for. It's for achieving things and completing tasks effectively. Right. So, you know, even if you had perfect pronunciation and perfect grammar, if you didn't interact with the person, the other candidate, if you didn't interact with them very well, then you, you would lose a lot of points, right? If, like, the, the way to do that badly is to kind of say what you've got to say. So I think that raising a family is the most important one because um, bringing children into the world is uh, a very serious thing. And so you need to think about that very carefully. And then the next person 
just sort of waits for you to finish and then says there they th says what they think. I think that moving to another country is probably the most important one because it can affect your entire life. And if you make the wrong decision, it could be very dangerous or you could end up um, losing a lot of money and losing a lot of time and experiencing culture shock. And then this person goes, um, bringing children into the world, I think is the most important thing to make, to, to make the right decision about. And the other person, you know, like there's no connection. The 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 people, what the examiners are looking for is for one person to make a point and the other person to show that they've listened and heard that point and understood it, and then to maybe build and and expand on the things that other person has said and make reference to the what to what that person has said. These are all things that you should be able to do because ultimately we should be using English to work together to achieve things. Right. And so those sorts of skills are being measured in that exam, not just pronunciation and grammatical accuracy. OK, if you can do that, if you can work together well, you'll get a good score for global achievement and you get a good score for what was the other category that was mentioned in that quote from the website? Interactive communication. There are other things here, discourse management and so on. But anyway, let's keep pressing forwards here with this episode. Ultimately, communication is is a means to an end. It's a tool for a job, just like my hammer. Although hopefully your communication is a bit more sophisticated than a hammer. Because <laughs> if, if you communicate in the same way that a hammer works and it's just bang, 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 I want some bread. You know, I want a coffee. That's like the hammer version of if your English was a hammer. But um, it is, a, it is a tool for a job, right? It's a means to an end. The means, that's the tool, is the language. But the end result is to actually make an agreement, to make someone feel something, to make someone understand something, to organise something with someone and successfully complete a specific task. So, Santi from episode 806 didn't pronounce some words and sentences correctly or in the same way that I would, but in the grand scheme of things, it didn't really matter. He might have conjugated some verbs wrongly, like getting a few ed endings wrong or forgetting third person s, or even just using present tenses when he should have used past tenses sometimes, or just saying, you know, as a filler a bit too often. But in the grand scheme of things, it didn't matter, did it? Now, those things are still important to get right. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you don't need to be correct in grammar or pronunciation or that it doesn't matter which words you're using. Santi would get more points in an exam if he improved some of those little errors. Not that he's going to take an exam or anything. He doesn't need to. But of course, those things are important. The point I'm making is that it's about the bigger picture and there are plenty of other factors involved. Let's look. Let's have some real fun now and look at specific IELTS speaking band descriptors. I'm going to get really specific now. Okay, so let's look at the specific IELTS speaking band descriptors. And you're thinking, what the hell does that mean, Luke? Well, IELTS scores are given in bands. You've got bands 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. These are bands, okay? Not bands like the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Who, the Oasis, Blur, not those sorts of bands, unfortunately, though that would be pretty good, wouldn't it? Congratulations. It's like, oh, I've got, you know, I've got my IELTS results. Oh, really? What did you get? Oh, my God, I'm in the Beatles. What, which Beatle are you? I'm, I'm, Paul, I'm Paul McCartney. Wow, brilliant. Or 
Oh, what 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 score did you get? Uh, oh, I'm in. Um, who would it be? I'm in Coldplay. All right. Okay, that's not so bad. You know, that's that's okay. Yeah, but I, <laughs> I wanted Radiohead. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, band zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine is high, zero is low. Okay? No one gets nine, by the way, and no one gets zero. Uh, Cambridge, well, maybe some people do, if they sit there and it's like, okay, question one. Uh, just nothing. If there's no English to be assessed, then I think you get nothing. If you don't write anything or say anything. I'm sure it's happened. So, uh, Cambridge English... Uh, at IELTS.org, publishes a list of descriptors for each band score. These describe what the different bands mean in terms of specific speaking skills. This should reveal the ways in which speaking is assessed in IELTS. Right, so you can consider your English as we talk about these descriptors. We're going to look at them all in a moment on a PDF from the IELTS website. Now first, let's picture the IELTS speaking test, all right? Imagine it. Some of you've done it already. Remember? How was it? Horrible or okay? Picture the IELTS speaking test. There's you. You're the, you're the candidate. And then there's the examiner. That's going to be me, right? I'm sitting opposite you in a desk. You come in. You're feeling nervous. You've been studying. You've been practicing. You've been listening to Luke's English podcast. <gasps> Deep breath. Right, let's go. And you sit down in front of the examiner. Right. So how do IELTS examiners assess your spoken English? So I've done IELTS training before. So it's talking about me as the examiner, right? I've done IELTS training before. I've, I've, you know, taught people how to prepare for the IELTS test. And I've done mock IELTS tests quite a few times where I've pretended to be the examiner. Okay. And also I've done this for other people's classes. For example, they've, they've, um, you know, other, other, my colleagues who are teaching an IELTS course have said, Luke, could you on Friday morning, could you be our IELTS examiner for the mock exams? And I say, sure, okay. And I sit there and then the students come in one by one. The first student comes in and they're like, wait, my examiner is Luke from Luke's English podcast. I'm like, yeah, sit down, please. Do you have your uh, marking sheet? Have you got your identification? You know, all that stuff. So I've done all that stuff before, and I've done the same with FCE, CAE, Beck Vantage, Beck Hire, right? They're, they're similar. They're all very similar. Not the same, but similar. So if I was doing a mock IELTS test with my students, and if I was the examiner, I would interview the candidate, give them speaking tasks to do, and at the same time, I would have to work out their score. On the desk in front of me, I would have a script for me to follow, a bit like the one we looked at there for CAE. I would have different tasks and questions for the test and some paper and a pen for writing notes and for writing the person's score. But it's not just a single score for speaking. I wouldn't just have a single category on that paper called speaking with a space for a number, right? That's not how it works. It's not like candidate's name, date, speaking and a space. It's not just that. Instead, I would have a piece of paper in front of me with at least four subcategories on it. I've mentioned those subcategories already. So we'd have, you know, 
fluency and coherence, and a, a space for me to write the score. Lexical resource, a space. Grammatical range and accuracy, a space. Pronunciation and a space. And then maybe some notes. I might write some notes about general task achievement. And then an overall score, which is an average of all those four categories together. Right, so I'd give a score in each category and then work out an average across the four categories. Now, I'm not an official IELTS examiner. I'm a teacher who is trained to prepare students for IELTS. So that's just the way that I do it. But I know for certain that the examiners use at least four subcategories when assessing a candidate's speaking. So here are those categories again for the third time. Fluency and coherence. Lexical resource, grammatical range and accuracy, pronunciation. What do those things mean? Okay, I'm going to explain what those things mean now. Just one thing. I just want you to note that accuracy, that's whether you make mistakes or not, is only half of one of those categories. You've got grammatical range and accuracy. That's just one of the categories. So what do the categories mean? Well, let's, let me talk about what those categories actually mean. And then we will look at the descriptions of different scores for each category. What's the difference between an IELTS 6 and an IELTS 7, for example? So this information I'm going to read now is from IELTS.org. Uh, their page, uh, which, set, which is called How Are Band Scores Awarded for Speaking? So what is fluency and coherence? Fluency and coherence refers to the ability to talk with normal levels of continuity, rate and effort, and to link ideas and language together to form coherent, connected speech. Right, so the ability to talk with normal levels of continuity. Right, continuity refers to your ability to keep talking without pausing and stopping to think. Right, so that's like your rambling ability. Actually, rambling, no, because rambling, if you just ramble and you don't keep your, organ your, your, your responses organised and to the point, then you can lose points for that because there you lose coherence. Anyway, continuity is your ability to keep talking without pausing, stopping and stopping for a long time to think. Rate, that's basically your speed. Okay, the word, the words to time ratio. So if uh, you speak in this kind of way, then you'd, you'd you know, that's a, that's a low rate. So, right? Normal levels of continuity and rate. So we don't want the kind of machine gun approach of I'll just get as many words and speak as quickly as possible. That's not normal. Just relax, calm down. We want a reasonable, normal level of continuity and rate and effort as well. Effort is important. If you're there going, um, so uh, speaking uh, English is uh, obviously um, important um, when uh, you are... In um, international um, uh, situations, uh, that's that's effort, right? You're making a lot of effort. 
So we don't want that level of effort. We want a normal level of effort. And to link ideas and language together to form coherent, that means clear and easy to understand, connected speech. Connected is not, connected speech there doesn't just refer to pronunciation, but the idea that your words and ideas are all linked up together and there's a, a sense of connection of the ideas as well as the words. Okay, the key indicators, meaning the most important things to notice uh, of fluency are speech rate and speech continuity. So being able to um, speak at a reasonable speed and to be able to continue speaking without everything breaking down. The key indicators of coherence, that means the way you're clear, are logical sequencing of sentences so that one sentence logically follows another sentence, clear marking of stages in a discussion, so, for example, to say, well, first of all, I think blah, blah, blah. But having said that, blah, 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 blah. Then again, blah, blah, blah. A third point could be blah, 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 blah. And finally, blah, blah, blah. You know, those sorts of things. Um, clear marking of stages, narration or argument, and the use of cohesive devices, which I've just sort of mentioned, really. Connectors, pronouns, conjugations. Pronouns are used to refer forwards to something you're going to say or refer back to what you've already said. Um, connectors. Conjunctions, expressions used to build longer sentences, to sh demonstrate a certain level of control over the language, which allows you to keep talking without stopping, making clear and easy to follow points. Okay. Okay. Both within sentences and between sentences. All right. Um, and then what is lexical resource? Lexical resource refers to the range of vocabulary the test taker can use and the precision with which meanings and attitudes can be expressed. The range of vocabulary the test taker can use. Range. Um, have I mentioned this before? Probably. A wide range refers to the variety of different words that you can use. If you have a wide range, you're using many different, you've got many different words and expressions available to you right? Imagine the um, if you go to a shop and you, you want to buy, um, you're looking for a hammer, you want to buy a hammer at the hardware shop and you go into the hardware shop and in the hardware shop they've got a very wide range of, of, of tools and they've got 19 different types of hammer. It's like you can have a hammer for this, hammer for that, you know, all these different sizes and shapes and things. That's a very wide range of hammers. Maybe a bit too many, maybe. Um, Similarly, if you if you want to buy some, you know, some food for dinner and you go to the supermarket and you want to buy sort of like certain vegetables to help you make your favorite recipe, um, you want to what you want to see is a, a wide range of different vegetables available. You want to see all the different types of, you know, different types of potato, sweet potatoes, different sort of root vegetables and carrots and lots of different green vegetables, you know, and right? You want a nice wide range. Similarly, your lexical resource refers to, you know, how many words are available to you? How many can you use? And the precision with which meanings and attitudes can be expressed. So are you able to express a specific idea with the right words? So it's not just using fancy words, but being able to convey specific ideas and specific meanings and attitudes. OK, the key indicators are the variety of words used, the adequacy and appropriacy of the words used. 
Are these words adequate, meaning do they do the job that they're supposed to do, which is to communicate a certain idea? Like, is the person listening to you, do they understand, wow, do they understand exactly what you mean? Or are they, is the person kind of going, uh, uh, like doing a lot of, doing a lot of the work, like uh, just trying to interpret what the hell this person talking about? What is this vague, what? What is this vague word salad? Um, so that's bad. Obviously, you want adequacy where the, the, the word is, does exactly what it's supposed to do and appropriacy of the words used. So this refers to the right style, the right register, not too formal, because in English, our spoken vocabulary can be quite informal, quite friendly and relaxed, right? So it doesn't mean using very formal language or using very specialist terms, but using the sort of everyday English that most people use in conversation especially in response to the question that's being given. For example, do you like living in the area where you live? Right? And, you know, that, so that calls for just normal, regular, everyday English rather than like special scientific terminology and stuff. So that's about um, appropriacy. And the ability to circumlocute, circumlocute, I've defined it already in the text that I'm reading from. If you can circumlocute, it means you can kind of get round problems where you're trying to express something and you realise, I just don't have the word for this. So what do you do in that situation when you just don't have the word for the thing you're trying to explain? Well, you need to circumlocute, circumlocute, circumlocute. You need to circumlocute, meaning find other words to get around that problem and to continue. Right? That's what circumlocute, circumlocute means. Without noticeable hesitation. Right? So use the right words, uh, the right in the right style, the appropriate style to show a wide range of vocabulary to say exactly what you mean so the other person doesn't have to struggle to understand. And that when you come across a situation where you don't know the word, which is very common, happens to native speakers too, that you find ways to effectively get around that, find other words to say what you're trying to say without it breaking, causing your flow to break down completely. Right? So that's a lexical resource. What are, what are grammatical range and accuracy? So we talk about range, we've got lexical range. Lexical refers to vocabulary, right? Uh, grammatical range here is the, the number of different grammatical forms that you can use to express yourself. So grammatical range and accuracy refers to the range and the accurate and appropriate use of the test taker's grammatical resource. Your grammatical resource is your shelf in the um, language supermarket in your head and in that language supermarket in your head, you've got the grammar section. And on that shelf, hopefully, you've got lots of different grammar forms, lots of different structures and forms available to you. Like, oh, I'll have a bit of that. I'll have a bit of that. Oh, I'm going to need that. You know, oh, I'm describing something that happened in the past. I'm going to need a bit of past continuous, a bit of past perfect, maybe a lot of past simple, all of that. And I'm going to need those conjunctions here and maybe a bit of... Um, third conditional as well. Have that as well. Oh, God, this is going to be an expensive sentence. Um, Right, that's your range that you can call upon lots of those different things. And uh, accurate, so obviously that you don't make mistakes. So that is important. And appropriate use of the test taker's grammatical resource. Appropriate. So again, that you use the right style of language for a, 
you know, a normal conversation, that you're not sort of speaking um, with the same kind of complex grammar that you might find in a legal contract, for example. The key indicators of grammatical range are the length and complexity of the spoken sentences, the appropriate use of subordinate clauses, and the range of sentence structures, especially to move elements around for information focus. That's like, you know, shifting the emphasis of the sentence so you can move this element to the beginning of the sentence and grammatically it still, it still maintains its structure. So you're using hedging, you know, adverbial structures, inversions, those sorts of things. The key indicators of grammatical accuracy are the number of grammatical errors in a given amount of speech and communicative effect of error. So it's not just the number of errors, but whether those errors have an effect on your ability to communicate. Okay? All right. And then <clears throat> finally, pronunciation. Pronunciation refers to the ability to produce comprehensible speech to fulfill the speaking test requirements. Comprehensible means that people are able to understand what you're saying. And it's got to be enough for you to do the tasks that are given to you. All right. The key indicators will be the amount of strain caused to the listener. That's again where the listener is kind of like, uh, what was that? Was that? Uh, uh, okay, that was, you know, like the listener sort of trying to decode what you're saying. I think that was I went to the post office, but I'm not sure. Uh, you know, uh, that's strain. So key indicators of the level the, your pronunciation school, how much strain is caused to the listener, the amount of the speech which is unintelligible, which is like, mm, no, just no idea what that was. That was unintelligible. Just can't identify it. And the noticeability of influence from the test taker's first language. For example, wow, it's very noticeable that this person is from Spain or Korea or wherever it is that the person is from. So that is a factor. So to be fair, Santi would have probably lost a couple of points there. But in terms of it being, uh, in terms of his pronunciation being good enough to fulfill the speaking test requirements, I think it was, I think that he would pass, right? I mean, there is no pass or fail in IELTS, but I think he would be getting a decent score for that. I'm not here to, to give Santi an IELTS score, by the way. Um, now, we could look at some of those descriptions from IELTS.org, but we're going to get very into some very specific details here. But let's come on, let's have a look. Okay. Fluency and coherence, lexical resource, grammatical range and accuracy, pronunciation. Let's look at sort of like a number four for fluency and coherence. It says, cannot respond without noticeable pauses and may speak slowly with frequent repetition and self-correction. Links basic structures, but with repetitious use of simple connectives. You know what? The text is too small for me to actually see it. I need glasses and I feel like I don't need to do this because I, the answer I gave just before was, was sufficient to explain what these things mean. But I mean, if we look at a number nine for fluency and coherence, it shows, it says this, speaks fluently with only rare repetition or self-correction. So you only repeat yourself or correct yourself sometimes, rarely. So a bit of repetition or self-correction is acceptable. 
And you can see that I do that sometimes. And I'm Luke from Luke's English Podcast. Uh, any hesitation is content related rather than to find words or grammar. Speaks coherently with fully appropriate cohesive features. Develops topics fully and appropriately. Okay, whereas like a five or a six is willing to speak at length, though may lose coherence at times. So the person is able to speak at length, but after a while or sometimes... It's what they're saying sort of doesn't make complete sense, probably because they lack the control or the the lexical res resource that they need, you know, um, uses a range of connectives and discourse markers, but not always appropriately. So you might be using some of those uh, linking words or discourse markers. You know, maybe the person is saying it depends of or they might say something like uh, in uh, despite of. And then, um, and then a clause like "despite of I went to the park," you know, which it should be, uh, despite the fact that I went to the park, or although I went to the park. Okay. Anyway, that's there for you to look at if you like. That's the IELTS uh, speaking band descriptors. Uh, which categories are the most important? You might be asking yourselves. Well, the f um, in terms of like fluency and coherence, lexical resource, grammatical range and accuracy and pronunciation, which categories are the most important? Well, the four categories are of equal importance in the exam, I expect. But if I had to choose, I would say that they go in order of importance from left to right. So with lexical resource, no, with fluency and coherence being the most important one, followed by lexical resource, grammatical range and accuracy, and then finally pronunciation. But it's a bit like the Beatles again, because, you know, if, if we say like John, Paul, George and Ringo, um, and Ringo's the last one, if you don't have Ringo, you know, it's still, it's not the Beatles. It doesn't work if Ringo's not there. If any one of them isn't there, it's not the Beatles. In the same way with the speaking uh, exam in IELTS, speaking test in IELTS, if one of those four things is just not there, then the whole thing falls apart, right? So you can't have fluency and coherence with zero in pronunciation. It just doesn't work, of course. Um, so they're all of equal importance. But if I absolutely had to choose, if someone was going to smack me in the head with a hammer, if I didn't choose, so if I had to choose, I would say that they go in order of importance from left to right with fluency and coherence probably being the most important. But of course, if any one of those categories is significantly weak, they will drag down the overall level. Uh, for example, if you are unintelligible in pronunciation, it sort of doesn't matter how many words you know or, or if you don't pause to think. If, just, if you're just babbling and no one understands any of the noises that are coming out of your mouth, then what's the point? Uh, grammatical accuracy is mainly significant if errors cause misunderstandings. But I guess errors can give the wrong, you know, errors can give the wrong impression. You know, there's a, uh, in the test, they will tolerate a certain amount of error in your grammar. But after a while, if you want to get it up to the eights and nines, then you need to be using, having, you need to have almost no errors in your English at all, right? Um, Interestingly, I feel like pronunciation, grammar, and lexis, that's vocabulary, all help us to achieve fluency. Fluency is where those three systems combine. Without a wide range of words 
which we can recall and use instantly, we can't express ideas quickly, specifically and coherently. But also we call upon our pronunciation, our ability to link our words together and to get the words out, the actual motor uh, you know, the muscle work of, of the factory of producing the words. It's got to be an efficient machine. You know, you've got to be in physical shape to actually get the words out. You know, without grammatical structures, we can't link ideas together clearly and express complex things without our speech breaking down and falling apart. And as I said, without pronunciation, we can't get our words out fluidly and clearly with words linked and yet stressed to give emphasis and impact. So they're all important. Um, so let me talk about assessing Santi's English. And I hope you don't mind, Santi, if you are watching this. But uh, I wonder what score Santi would get if he took an IELTS speaking test. I shouldn't really speculate about that. Right. But I can say that I've mentioned this, that his weak spot is probably pronunciation, although this is still at a good level because I was able to understand him. And after all, he is Spanish. And so it's normal that he has a Spanish accent, right? He's not going to be judged too harshly for that. He shouldn't be. Uh, and then perhaps grammatical accuracy as well. He made a few grammar mistakes, which probably stuck out because we were looking for them, right? Because I think that when people listen to my guests on my podcast, they are judging their English. Okay. That's what you do, isn't it? As language learners, you're hypersensitive to that stuff. So he made a few mistakes. They probably stuck out because we were looking for them. I bet a lot of people listening were focusing intently on his English and judging him a lot. And to be fair, he handled that very well, right? He didn't seem to be too bothered by the fact that he was on an English learning podcast. So fair enough. Pronunciation and grammar, grammatical accuracy right? But he really makes up for his weak spots by having good grammatical range. So he was able to employ a range of structures which allowed him to have control over what he was saying and to express some complex ideas. Also, strong lexical resource. Um, he was able to find just the right words. He used words which were appropriate for the conversation, like switching from bits of slang when it was appropriate to more formal language to describe his work and so on. And generally, he used some very nice, very descriptive, idiomatic sometimes, and frequently used expressions, phrases and words, you know, things like let's crack on and a number of other things. And then excellent fluency and coherence. So he organised his ideas with clarity. He didn't seem to struggle any more than someone might in their first language, as far as I could tell. He didn't pause excessively, right, or desperately search for for things he was trying to say. There was no point where it broke down. He was able to keep going and going, linking one idea to the next. So there you have it. Okay, everybody, some things to think about there as we edge towards an hour and 40 minutes of podcasting here. Conclusions. Let me give some conclusions at the end. So being good at English is not all about having a British accent or never making a grammar mistake. There are plenty of other things involved in being good at English. And I think that everyone should think about those things too and, and remember to work on those things and remember to also um, consider those things as really good things, as really important things too. Of course, it's up to you. If your goal is to have a British accent, in which case, which one? If you, if you really want a British accent, which one is it that you want? 
Uh, but if that is your goal, then I'm not going to stop you. But I do want you to put that in perspective and to realise all the many other things which you can focus on. And finally, at the end here, I just want to give you a message of encouragement as learners of English out there. Because one of the main lessons learned from my conversation with Santi was that perseverance, positivity and practice are three of the most important factors in this game that we call learning English. So keep your chin up, keep practicing, don't stop. Even if it seems difficult, just keep going. Don't let your weaknesses stop you. There are other areas where you can be strong. Don't worry about achieving perfection. I mean, you can strive for it. Be my guest. But don't worry too much if you're not getting 100% in everything. Just keep going and do your best. And you might find that that is enough or in fact more than enough. And enjoy it. You only get one life and it's happening right now. So what are you waiting for? Go ahead and use English and make some connections with people. Be curious about others. Be keen to connect with them and be kind as well. Be kind and generous with your time and your attention to other people you meet and talk to. And also be kind to yourself as well. Don't judge other people's English too harshly. It's not a competition. Okay, everybody? Right. That's the end of this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you did, if you found this useful, give me a like or a comment or a review. Okay? And have a nice morning, afternoon, evening or night. And I will speak to you soon. But for now, it's time to say goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.